I'm Charles Krausen, and this is Outside the Box, the podcast about retail and all things related. Today, a bonus episode with one of the kings of football. Now, I know that baseball has been called a national sport, and trust me, I love the game, played for more than 16 years into college. But by the numbers, both in viewers and on television and in league revenue, football is now hands down the All-American winner. But it wasn't always that way, and the road to the top for the NFL has had many bumps along the way. No one knows this better than former NFL commissioner Paul Tagliabue, who's now credited bringing a lasting peace to the league after a decade of infighting between players and owners. His success might have something to do with his perspective. He knows sports from all sides, starting as a kid in the schoolyard. Uh, you know, I've been an athlete my whole life. I went to Georgetown on a basketball scholarship, and I look back in my youth. I would spend 10 hours a day in schoolyards playing every sport that the season would permit, including basketball and icy fields and football and asphalt. But but at the same token, I, I'm interested in lots of other things, and, you know, including education. And so, so I try to keep a balance in my life, and my wife makes sure that I, that I view the world that way. But there's just something about football in particular that just gets to it. The mix of physical psychological, tactical, strategic that goes into football that I think excites people. And, 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 and the other thing is, to some extent, people love football because not everyone can do it. Since handing over the reins of the National Football League to Roger Goodell in 2005, Paul has sat on the board of directors of his alma mater at Georgetown. He's also worked with PFLAG, an organization for families with lesbian and gay children, his son, Drew, is the executive director of its New York City chapter. Now, we also talked about the league as a business and the changes he has seen since his tenure ended. We started off, though, by talking about how he got involved in the league in the first place way back. Well, I became involved in 1969, 1970 as a young lawyer, and that was the 50th anniversary of the league, basically. There was sort of the uh, pre-television era and the post-television era, and that really is... 1960, 61, 62, in terms of the, the first effort by the league to have national television contracts and to share the revenue from the national contracts equally. Now, we're talking about $3 million for the first television contract for the whole league. So Now that, ads uh, go for that much. Yeah, now 30-second spots go for that, and, uh, and it's below the minimum wage for players. From 62 to 82, there, it was really a, a period of tremendous growth and tremendous success. But by 82, success had produced its problems, and then that included uh, a long seven-week strike that canceled seven games, uh, a truncated season which infuriated the fans, increasing unwillingness of public authorities to, to do tax-supported finance for stadium, which is understandable. When, when you're a multi-billion dollar business, you're not going to get the same kind of support you might have gotten in early year, earlier years. The 1980s turned out to be a lost decade, really. It was a decade of playing defense and dealing with problems, that, 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 but no growth and no focus on innovation, no focus on change. So, so that's when I came in in 89. I, and I had lived through that as outside counsel to the league. I had lived through the decade of the 80s. That was about the point where I became more mature as a sports fan. The popularity of the sport was growing by leaps and bounds. Did you guys see that? Because that springboard opportunity got cut short by that strike. You said it's a lost decade. 
Seems like a lot of lost opportunity right there because of the popularity it was building in the mid-'80s. Yeah, it was. You know, I think uh, by by 81, you had the highest-rated Super Bowl game in history, even up to today, was the San Francisco-Cincinnati game. And that was the beginning of Bill Walsh's run and Joe Montana's run. So, But you could see that the tension was growing with the players, and that hit home with the strike in 1982 where almost half the season was canceled. And and what was left of the season was was an insult to the customers, basically. The worst year ever was 87 when the players went on strike again, and then the owners uh, deployed replacement players, which in you know labor parlance are scabs, but in football parlance they were people who couldn't play in the NFL, and it was an insult to have them wearing NFL uniforms. Insult to the fan, not to the players. I mean, some of them were terrific college football players, but it was not the gold standard that you expected to get when you were buying either NFL advertising on television or NFL tickets at the box office. And the worst part of that strike was that it didn't conclude with a settlement. The players just gave up and they liquidated their union. So I I knew from that decade of experience that everything had to change. So when you took over in 89 for Roselle and you come in, in the wake of litigating the strike in 87, you see so many challenges in front of you. Where did you start? Because what you've just described is almost sounds like a Mount Everest of problems. Well, where I started was with the, the, the business model of the league and the governance structure. The league had made a decision that the owners, as the employers of the players, would have their own multi-employer collective bargaining group. And the commissioner would have nothing to do with that. So you had a business where the CEO basically was divorced from the product, which is the game, and divorced from the key employees who make the product, the players, and that had been farmed out to an owner committee for for labor law purposes. It made no sense in terms of governance and management, so I had to liquidate an owner committee and replace it with a committee chaired by the commissioner, which took a lot of of one-on-one conversations, but I give credit to some of those owners who who had suffered through you know a decade of, of criticism, but were willing to change, and I and I was able to take over the, the leadership on the labor relations side, and, and we were able to get labor peace with a lot of input from owners and club presidents and many many people, but also at the executive level, the league had grown up, so the management structure was basically a pyramid with a commissioner at the top, and at the bottom. There were about 20 or 25 people who thought they reported to the commissioner. There was no president, chief operating officer. There was no CFO. There was no talent in in television, uh, in in apparel, you know, retailing, sponsorship, stadium construction. There was no talent that was up to the challenge of, of really reinventing the league in the areas that had to be reinvented, which is the relationship with the players, television, stadiums, and expansion internationally. We brought people in. We started to recruit from outside the sport. We brought people in from NBC. We brought people in from Viacom. We brought people in from MTV that had marketing. So we had to reinvent our approach to talent and executive you know, leadership, and that, that whole structure changed. Without that, you can't get much done. The average fan tuned into their game here in the Central Time Zone at noon on Sunday, 3.30, whenever, and they see the product knowing nothing about the machinations going on behind the scenes to keep your workforce happy, uh, that being the players on the field with whom the fan most directly connects, but also ownership, retail, 
television. Television played a huge role uh, during your leadership in the 90s. Tell, about, tell me about that. Well, it's, I became commissioner in late 89, and uh, and that was the final year of, of, of three-year television contracts. So for the 1990 season, we had no television contracts unless we'd negotiated new ones. And so the first thing we did, which was um, a major departure from the past, was to look really hard at subscriber-supported television. In, in that context, it was mostly ESPN. But Ted Turner had started uh, Turner Broadcasting and, and Turner TNT Sports. So we, for the first time, had major negotiations for cable television. So we did television contracts that added Sunday night football on cable and added about, I don't know, maybe $500 million a year of revenue that didn't exist previously. So that was fine, uh, but we still had players who were you know, litigating rather than focused on playing. And we still had a, a system of allocation of players which had outlived its usefulness. So, so from the next thing we had to do was get an agreement done with the players, which was a result of a settlement of litigation and a reconstitution of the union in a collective bargaining agreement. And that, that really brought in a couple of things. Number one, it brought in a salary cap, which from the owner's standpoint was a, a, an important measure in terms of spreading the talent and controlling costs. But it also brought in free agency. Uh, so everyone was entitled to free agency after four years of in the league, with one exception, the so-called franchise player. And, and that distinguished our salary cap from what existed in basketball, which had a salary cap, and it, and it distinguished us from any other sport where you can say the most important guy on our team is X. And in, in that negotiation in 1992, the, the best example of X was John Elway. So what became known as the franchise player rule, in those days we used to call it the Elway rule. About two years ago I was having dinner with John and I told him it was the Elway rule. And he said, are you kidding me? He said, you mean I get blamed for restricting free agency for quarterbacks? I said, no, you get a credit for creating the greatest league in the history of sports. A lot of fans and a lot of people who are critics and historians of the league will lay that at your feet and say, you made moves through the 16 to 17 years of your tenure from 89 to 06 that, I mean, granted, you took the league from $900 million to $6 billion, and now it's since doubled under Goodell. But those moves paved the way under your tenure for what has become the most popular sport in America. Well, you know, a big part of the credit also goes to Gene Upshaw, who was the head of the Players Association at the time. But more importantly... He was, you know, maybe the greatest offensive lineman in the history of the game, and he's in the Hall of Fame. And I think two things are worth saying about Gene. The first one was when I became commissioner, Al Davis called me up, and Upshaw had played for the Raiders, and he and Al Davis knew each other very well as, as owner, coach, and player. And Al Davis said to me, you know, the owners have been spending the last decade boxing with the players. And what they don't understand is that offensive linemen – are taught from the time they start playing that position, if a defensive guy hits you in the head, you, hit him, you smack him back twice as hard. So every time they smack Upshaw, he smacks them back twice as hard. So stop smacking him in the head. Sit down and have some sensible conversations that include some respect for your adversary. So I said, okay, I hear you. And I had a, sort of the same sense because in the 80s, I had cross-examined Gene Upshaw in trials and litigation. And you know, in a sense, he and I were both tired of Warden. The other thing about Gene Upshaw was, having played the position he played, he knew that 
great quarterbacks depended on great offensive linemen. Great offensive teams depended on having good defensive teams. And, and that 45 or 50 guys or even 60 when you include injured players make the game as competitive and as great as it is. So there has to be some sense of equity among the salaries. So you can't have quarterbacks making $6 million, which in those days was a lot, and linemen making 200000 which in those days was a little. Those numbers have changed. But the salary cap really forces the other guys other than the the visible players to, to be paid fairly. Before we got the salary cap, I remember a conversation with Phil Sims, and I said, what do you think will be the biggest effect of uh, of a salary cap? He said, the left tackle and the right tackle who protect me will get paid fairly for the first time. Right. And they do now, and, they, and, and they're some of the highest-paid players in the sometimes league. Sometimes they're the over one number, uh, overall number one pick in drafts now. And, because... some, and sometimes they're the franchise player, and the quarterback is not. <laughs> Absolutely. The league, the league right now, it's it's undeniable. It's embroiled in the situation uh, and has been now going back to last season, the take and knee situation. Uh, players demonstrating and protesting uh, during the national anthem. Your thoughts on that as it has carried out? These young men are patriotic. They're respectful of the military. Many of them grew up and grow up in families that are military families. I know that from my own experience over the years. I know how much time they spend in the off-season going to visit troops, not just in the United States, but around the world, including in you know Europe and Iraq and Afghanistan. When I was commissioner, I used to have an annual luncheon with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Myers. Gene Upshaw and I used to have an annual lunch with General Myers. At his request, he would have us come to the Pentagon to thank us for what the players were doing with the military. So, so the general, I can say, and, and to get to the point of saying, well, this is about lack of respect for the military, I think is, you know, very unfortunate, to put it mildly. So what does it do? It produces an environment which is not conducive to a resolution somewhere in the middle. It, 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 it's, it's an environment that's conducive to a hardening on both sides, which is what we've seen and which is exactly what we don't need. In your estimation, you, t- you have dealt so much in player structures, salary structures, things like, th- things like this on the pro level. Could you see a day when the college athlete is paid? I can. In fact, I'm on the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, which is, you know, one of the big not-for-profit groups that's involved with the governance of college sports. I've said publicly that some combination of improved benefits, especially in the area of health and safety for college athletes, is is critical to get done. And, And I think that's now being addressed by the NCAA and the colleges including Georgetown, where I serve on the board of directors for the last 12 years. But I'm in favor of uh, what I call academic achievement awards. So if a student athlete graduated in four years, he or she could get a $50,000 bonus. If, if someone graduated and got admitted to a bona fide master's program, they'd get $100,000. And I also think the scholarship should, should guarantee seven years of education, not just four years of education, because to, to think that Division One basketball players and Division One football players can be expected to put in all the time they do in sports and get a degree in four or five years is unrealistic. They should have a four or five year athletic period and then two or three more years of full scholarship to get a degree or, or to get some type of certificate that manifests the education that, they have, that they've had. I don't think they should be paid, but I do think they should be rewarded in other ways. 
In 2006, you handed over the reins to Roger Goodell, and since that time, the league has grown, uh, doubled in terms of revenues from six to $14 billion. Not to give him a report card grade or the league itself, but what have you seen change uh, in the National Football League in this 11-year period? Well, I think, uh, you know, what I've seen is a lot of the things that all businesses are, are seeing. Enormous demographic change, a rapidly growing Hispanic, you know, Latino community. But I think the most important changes are, are what, those driven by technology and what we're now calling social media and how, and how people use their leisure time and how they access not just entertainment, but, you know, how they access information. So the growth of fantasy sports, the the changes on television, and you, you can see it today when a big section of the population is probably looking at the NFL on, on their iPhone or their Android. The fans, they have access to uh, information moving with unprecedented speed you know, throughout the fan base. Uh, some of it's accurate, some of it's inaccurate, but it requires you to respond in, in ways that are unusual. You know, in terms of some of the disciplinary issues, did he do the right thing with Ray Rice, or what is the right thing to do? How do you handle these player disciplinary issues or team disciplinary issues? It's it's very complicated. It's it's complicated for universities. It's complicated for all businesses to to deal with some of these issues. You know, sexual harassment, spousal abuse. Most of the challenges the league have had are sort of a microcosm of the challenges that most businesses have, and uh, they they're just a little more visible when you're the NFL. Could you imagine? or a, a strategic approach you might have to, uh, to to governing in a time where social media occurs as it does? I've thought a lot about the differences in terms of the demands it puts on management, which has a lot of implications. It means you have to do a lot of planning. You have to do tabletops. You have to understand relationships. You have to have plans in place for you know a huge number of contingencies. Uh, Many organizations call that enterprise risk management. So I think that the whole concept of the chief risk officer and enterprise risk management has grown up in business generally because people understand that some of your biggest risks are going to hit you in the back of the head. They're not going to be things that are coming down the highway in front of you. That, I think, is the biggest change. Now, how do you deal with that in terms of your management? In the, in the NFL context, in the sports league context generally, your shareholders are the owners, that's one thing. Your board of directors are the owners. That's another thing. And so you have a, in the NFL, you have a 32-member board. That's a pretty big board for most companies to have, usually six or eight or better than 32 in terms of being nimble. You always have to strive for consensus, but you need to recognize at some point you have to make decisions and choices without consensus. You can strive as much as you want, but to get consensus among 32 people or unanimity, which is what you hope for in some contexts, uh, 9-11, Katrina, the Rooney Rule about minority hiring for coaches, some of those things you just have to say, uh, I've, I've listened to enough and here's what we're going to do. I have three very quick questions for you, and these are very ra just rapid fire. When's the last time you went to a game as a fan? Probably in uh, the 1988 season. Although I would have to change that to say that I do go to a Ravens game every year with my grandkids, and that's about as close as I can become to becoming a fan. Do you still like football? Yeah, 
I like it a lot. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm really troubled by the health and safety issues. I think that they are complex. I think that they're seriously misdescribed and misunderstood because the science is still in its early stages, if, if not in its infancy. But obviously there are issues. We, we know that much in terms of uh, how it affects certain players, uh, concussions and other, other injuries. Player in the game today who excites you? Well, this young player in Philadelphia, Carson Wentz, is pretty exciting. And this running back in Kansas City, Kareem Hunt, is pretty exciting. Uh, you know, I, I'm probably missing some of the most important because I, I, I don't watch as many games as I used to. But Tom Brady has got to be at the top of anyone's list in terms of excitement. It, it's, it's amazing what he has done and what he continues to do. You mentioned growing up as an athlete, playing basketball at Georgetown, being athletic your entire life. What is it about football that appeals so much to the American audience? It, it grew up in parts of the country, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, uh, which were coal mining and steel producing and manufacturing, heavy, heavy industry. I used to say if, if you're working in the coal mine for 12 hours a day, seven, six or seven days a week in, in the 1920s and getting out on the football field and having the fresh air and the opportunity to knock someone down and run, run over him. That was a form of relaxation. Today, it's, it's different with, in our society, what we expect in terms of sports. But the sport grew up in that era of industrial America. And it had deep roots in college athletics, too. Uh, that, that's another thing which continues to this day. Part of the popularity of football is high school and college football. So it has deep roots in communities all over the country. I say it has to do with, it's a very complex form of athletic adversity. It's, it, it's, it's a form of physical, tactical, strategic, emotional challenge, which is unique. And so for Americans, it's a way of dealing with adversity and admiring people who succeed in overcoming the adversity and who get knocked down over and over again, but get up and win. You know, I used to say, if you if you go into a room of f Americans and talk about Walter Payton, you you see what it's about. It's about a guy who carried the ball thousands of times, got knocked down thousands of times, but ultimately got up and carried it over the goal line. And I think a lot of people like to see themselves as not only admiring that person, but having those kinds of that, that kind of work ethic and that kind of ambition. What a fascinating experience and a wonderful conversation. One of the legends in all of professional sports. Hope you enjoyed it too. Let us know by tweeting us at Walmart Today. Again, on Twitter, at Walmart Today, or leave a comment in your favorite podcasting app. Also, if you like what you hear, take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. This helps others find the show. Thanks again for listening to this special bonus episode. We'll see you next time.